there's starting to be kind of an industry excitement about this, which is way better when it's just environmentalists and a few academics like me screaming and ranting. But when it's instead, it's the business community, it's capitalism starting in the market, starting to, to feel its power. And I, I think we're in that kind of world right now. Welcome to the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for Durham. And today we're going to be talking about the environment, climate change, and issues related to the country and the environment we're handing to the next generation, to my kids, Molly and Jack, to your kids and grandkids. Think for a moment. Canada is a G7 country. We have a NATO alliance. We are a NORAD alliance with the United States. We're a founding state of the United Nations. We're a trading nation. Half of our GDP depends on that trade with the United States and even more with other countries. Canada plays a role in NATO. We play a role in Ukraine right now. Should Canada be a nation that meets its commitments, our 2% commitment for NATO defense spending? Our commitments related to foreign aid, our commitments related to the environment. In 2015, the Harper government set targets for the Paris Climate Change Conference. We were one of 196 countries that came together to try and limit global warming to just 1.5 degrees by 2030. To do that, we as a country pledged to lower our emissions by 30% from 20. 2005 levels by 2030. These were targets set by Prime Minister Harper, but the election of 2015 meant that it was the Trudeau government that signed on to these targets. In the time since then, Prime Minister Trudeau has increased that to 45% below 2005 levels. But in the end, should Canada meet these commitments? Are we a nation that stands by our word? or are we one that does not? That's what we're going to be talking today, and we're fortunate to have one of Canada's leading thinkers, leading commentators, and leading advisors over the last generation on climate change. Professor Mark Jacquard holds the title of Distinguished Professor at Simon Fraser University and serves as Director of the School of Resource and Environmental Management. From 1992 to 97, he was Chair and CEO of the British Columbia Utilities Commission. He has his PhD in energy economics from the University of Grenoble, and his research focus is the design and application of energy economy emission models for assessing climate policies. And he has advised governments of all political colors. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, and in 2009 was named British Columbia Academic of the Year. Three of his books have been shortlisted for the Donner Prize, with one of them winning. His latest book, is the Citizen's Guide to Climate Success, Overcoming Myths That Hinder Progress. So today we'll be talking myths, we'll be talking progress, and we'll be talking climate change. Welcome to Blue Skies, Mark Jacquard. Thanks for having me, Aaron. I'm very pleased to be here on this show. Well, and you're up early joining me from our beautiful West Coast, but many people have probably heard you on the radio or on television broadcasts. You have been uh, a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate. Your personal history in terms of someone advising on climate change, on emission reduction, is quite interesting. Can you take us through that and what you've seen over the years advising provincial and federal politicians on the subject? Thanks. Yeah. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll try to be quite brief so that uh, then you can always explore various areas. And I know we will in discussion. So just a, a quick synopsis is, as you said, I, I was or I went and did my PhD. I'm from Vancouver originally. Uh, I was lucky in those days, if you won a national scholarship, you could actually take it to uh, a notable institute. I went to France. I wanted to do one of my degrees in French. And so I was at the University of Grenoble, which had a, a, a very famous institute at the time um, in energy and economics. And what I, what we 
combined was an, an engineering analysis. So really knowing technologies with an economic analysis. And that's sort of what spurred me on to work in that area. I was, uh, I, when I was a grad student, it was uh, acid rain was the big issue. And I had not, you know, you'd heard about greenhouse gas emissions. Then I got a position back in my home city of Vancouver. And in 1989, um, the Mulroney government sent me to a meeting in Paris of the International Energy Agency after um, the G6 or whatever they were called then, it was Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, and Brian Mulroney had all agreed that uh, wealthy countries needed to start reining in the greenhouse gas emissions, mostly CO2 from burning coal, oil, and gas. So that was way back then. And that was a conservative government sent me um, and you know came back, made recommendations, not to Mulroney, but to somewhere in the middle of the public service, of course. And from there, um, when Canada signed the Kyoto Protocol later on, that was the Chrétien government in 1997, then they started a large national process. We've had several of these. And because I'm known as someone, as you said, who evaluates or my team or people I train evaluate policies, will they really achieve emission reductions? Um, uh, that our team was picked to do the national modeling for this national process that involved federal and provincial. And, um, and then you know, the target was for 2010. The Chrétien government didn't do the things that would achieve that target. Uh, the Harper government came in in 2006 and said, uh, and, and I was one of the economists, they asked, uh, can we actually reach our 210 target now? And I said, and I agreed with the minister at the time. Well, first of all, Rona Ambrose was minister of environment and, and I, she, she hired me to be an advisor. Later on, Harper appointed me to the national roundtable on the economy and the environment. And, um, and, and, I, and then I was asked by, I think it was John Baird at the time, to analyze the Kyoto target, and I was one of the people that said, you can't reach it now, uh, which made me very unpopular with uh, Greens and NDP and, and so on. Uh, and, then, and then I'll end uh, with this. In, in, so things federally slowed down a little bit under Harper, to be honest, um, but uh, in British Columbia, a conservative coalition of parties. So it's called the Liberal Party in British Columbia, but it's uh, it's 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 a, a you know a nice spectrum on the right. Of uh, so, if you're a conservative, you would vote with this group. The Liberal Party in British Columbia, headed by Premier Gordon Campbell at the time, became a North American leader in climate, and I. You know, I didn't talk him into this. I got a call from his deputy minister one day saying, we want you to help. And I, I, I said, OK, I'll help. So we, we developed a carbon uh, tax in British Columbia. And I can talk more about that because it's something that people on the right, like an Andrew Coyne, uh, have supported. Um, and we did a lot of other regulations as well. And, and so that's sort of my story um, in, a, in a nutshell. Sorry for running on on there. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's fascinating. And you kind of uh, took us through a, a, a few of the highlights with with Kyoto and with with Paris, and as parties and governments around the world really tried to struggle with how to implement the goal, which was noble. How do we, particularly back in the Thatcher Mulroney Reagan days, um, coal was still a primary source for electricity generation in most of the developed world. Uh, it's it's a little less so now, and obviously that lets emissions come down. But it shows you've been able to advise um, all political stripes because of that history and your your ability to evaluate policies to actually meet emission goals. And that's that's what's central here, right, is, is you can have a desire to reduce emissions, but without an actual plan, balancing off the need to keep people working, keep the economy humming, it, it, is, it is just wishful thinking. And I'd like you to expand on that a little bit because you've also been an advocate for flexible regulation, carbon pricing, or a combination of two, because really to meet large emission reductions, whether it's 30% or 45%, there needs to be some fundamental change. And, and that often needs a bit of flexibility. Can you talk about that for a moment? Yes. And in fact, the way I'll, I'll lead into that is I, I do try to always speak in a language that makes sense for that that goes with the facts that people do understand. So here's the one that's really important statement. 
fossil fuels are wonderful. And, and they are amazing. Fossil fuels over a 250-year period have led to the lengthening of human lifespan, to um, an incredible improvement in our standards of living. And, and so some, what kills me is that sometimes people who want to act on climate will therefore say fossil fuels are evil. And, and this is not they, the other people who have benefited from fossil fuels and are not willing to take that position so strongly can see that this is nonsense. They can see that coal to make electricity has lifted people out of poverty, that that, you know, that oil um, has been an amazing revolution in our ability to move goods around and people around. And um, and so. And then natural gas coming a little bit later, but also now very critical for so many things. Um, and this is fossil fuels, both for our energy needs primarily, but also as a feedstock, we make plastics from them. We, we, we use them in the steel production process. This is all, so to me, you start from the premise that fossil fuels are wonderful. And then from that, you say, oh yeah, what are, what are the scientists telling us? So we, we don't have to like, oh, they're telling us we can't emit CO2 and other greenhouse gases when we do things, when we get energy, when we make plastics, when we whatever. And so at some point, we can still say that fossil fuels are wonderful, but we can't emit CO2. And the reason that that's a good thing to say is because then it takes you away from this like battle of the good versus evil, like fossil fuels are inherently evil. And the people who, who, who produce fossil fuels, the regions that are dependent on that production, these sectors of the economy, that they're somehow evil, you get away from that. And that's one reason why it's almost 20 years ago now, well, it's 2004, I published a book called Sustainable Fossil Fuels, which did win the Donner Prize thanks for mentioning that. And, and in there, I said, you know what? You can't tell people if they come from an area of fossil fuels that we need to annihilate their economy. They're not going to believe the science. They're not going to believe you on policy or anything. So once you get past that, then you say, okay, forget about stopping to use fossil fuels. How do we stop emissions? And because fossil fuels are so wonderful, you're going to have to either put a price on that pollution which there's a long history of doing with other pollutants, or you're going to, so that's a carbon price or a carbon tax or whatever you want to call it, um, or you're going to have to put regulations on the technologies and energy forms, so regulations on cars, their efficiency or their emissions, regulations on coal plants, regulations on buildings. And, and so that's where it takes me to a long-winded answer to your question about why you have to do that it's because if you're if you're caring about those future generations um then you're gonna have to figure out a way to use fossil fuels maybe you'll switch away from fossil fuels but in some cases you'll just you'll use them but you'll capture the emissions put them underground while you convert that fossil fuel into electricity which is zero emission or into hydrogen which is zero emission or into heat which is zero emission well said. And and this is, you know, we'll talk later a little bit about the polarization on the issue of climate on both left and right. But this is good to state up front. Fossil fuels have been incredible in terms of, as you said, lifting most of the world out of, out of poverty and particularly developing nations are going to be behind us in terms of uh, uh, a less carbon intensive uh, electricity grid type thing. But we can actually leverage fossil fuels, leverage technology to get emissions down, because that is actually the goal. Other people will present this as an anti-resource or an anti-development policy. But what is really the goal is to get emissions down. And that can be done through a range of policies, this sort of flexible regulation. And the more there's success on technology, on tailpipe emissions or, or industrial uh, emissions, that gives you a little bit of flexibility on the carbon price for consumers, for example. Is that, and, and that flexibility allows you to be 
adaptive as as the technology improves. Is that is that what you've been pushing for many years? Well, yes, and in, and in fact, um, I'm glad that what you just asked fits in nicely. So that when you do some kind of policy to make sure that the emissions are going down, um, economists will say the best way is some kind of price on the pollution. And it, it doesn't have to be a carbon tax. It can be something that you innovated in the last election. And, and I know we'll talk about that. Um, but well, the reason economists like this is because it's not dictatorial. It doesn't say to people, you know, you, you, you actually are dependent on a large truck that still burns diesel. And whereas someone else, it could be you know, they can switch to something. It gives each person that choice for what's the best thing. And so economists love carbon pricing. And I don't know how many conservatives read Andrew Coyne, whether they like him or not, but he would fit that, epitomize that in Canada is he will criticize uh, conservatives, but he really criticizes liberals when they're, um, when they're unwilling to just use carbon pricing. And so this is this idea that it's the most economically efficient, which is funny because Stephen Harper kind of said, uh, you know, carbon prices will ruin everything. And, and, and the evidence is not there for that. But if you're thinking we don't need to do carbon pricing, maybe you don't like it for some reason, or um, like you just, you think it might be unfair. It doesn't have to be unfair because it's all depends on how you give the money back. But let's say you think it's unfair. Then there are ways to design regulations in individual sectors. So regulations on coal plants. And those regulations though, can be flexible. It doesn't mean that there's loopholes. <laughs> so some people interpret flexibility as loopholes. What it means is they can allow people to say, oh, your emissions have to go down, but let's allow you to trade with other um, electricity generators. They, they've got lower emission uh, coal even, or they've got more natural gas, or they've got more renewables or nuclear power. And so you can trade so that um, we, we hit a target in total, but people trade among themselves. And that trading price, when they each have permits, is like an implicit carbon pricing. And that's why economists like me will say, well, it's the second best. And, 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 it's, and in some cases, our, our research shows, and, and it's implemented, these things are implemented everywhere, that it can be quite close. I'll give you one more example is that California created a zero emission, and they created low emission vehicle standards. These are requirements on individual auto sellers that you know your your percentage of low emission vehicles that you sell has to climb every year you're selling a few more of these well some firms like tesla are way ahead of everyone else so they get surplus permits because they you know if the target was 20 percent sales and they're at 100 percent of zero emission sales, then they've got an 80% surplus, which is permits that they can sell to General Motors and others who are not able to make the 20, not yet able to make the 20% target. Now they all say they're going to start hitting these targets by 2030 and they're making huge investments, but that's an example of a flexible regulation. And I have been an advocate of that um, because, because I want us to keep moving forward with policy. And I've noticed that these, these are easier politically. People can sort of understand, oh yeah, we have to stop openly burning coal to make electricity. We have to stop uh, running all of our vehicles on gasoline. And so the regulation actually describes what it is that you're trying to do. That's a great explanation. Thank you, Mark, because um, look, we're sitting here talking and, and my wounds from my, uh, my policy on carbon pricing are just starting to heal now. Um, and our policy, which full trends, uh, you know, to be transparent, um, we, we got your advice on we, we also engaged Navius, a firm that, that you're associated with and have been to, to advise us because our policy that we had in the last election did have flexible regulation. We had an uh, EV standard, we had renewable natural gas, we had a range of, of flexible regulations. But what I found, going back to how I started this podcast, if Canada wanted to meet its international commitments, and I was looking at the original 30% Paris commitment, um, we found that if we wanted industry to still prosper, including the natural resource industry in Western Canada, we needed to incorporate a consumer element. And, and so the pricing aspect 
came into it as as being critical uh, for us to meet our targets, which is why we we came up with the low carbon savings account as a way to avoid a tax going to Ottawa. Um, but you you described a bit of cap and trade and, and trading of emissions. You advised John Baird. I've read Jim Prentice's uh, speech on this. Conservatives were exploring a cap and trade, and that's what Quebec uses with California. Is is that a model that could work if more and more states in the United States follow this lead? Because right now the carbon price ends at the Ontario-Michigan border. I always used to explain the the auto plants in Windsor. You can ride your bike to the plants in Detroit where there's no price on carbon. So for a North America with the U.S. being such a big player and the leakage of emissions, the, the transference of, of, of operations to the United States to avoid the carbon price, is cap and trade probably something that has a better chance in North America longer term because of state level action? That's a, that's a great uh, question. And um, so and, uh, there's just a couple of things to, 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 to un- unpack there. One, I just want to, I want to, go back to your earlier point because I want to compliment you. Uh, I was very excited when when you, uh, I guess it was last April that I became aware of this, but you were you were looking to get independent experts like me, like the people at Navius are used by everyone. They're used by industry, mm-hmm. the Alberta government, the Ontario government. And you were, you were saying, you know what, if I'm going to have a target, um, I want to be honest about, uh, do I have policies to achieve the target? And so I was thrilled to help you because I, I'd like, I would love if the issue of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, not stopping to use fossil fuels, just reducing greenhouse gas emissions were no longer a partisan political issue. And so um, it, it doesn't mean that you've you've stopped being a conservative, quite the opposite, because it's how you pick those policies to achieve those targets. But it's simply targets that Brian Mulroney, Stephen Harper, uh, that provincial premiers have that are conservatives have linked on to. And so you were just trying to say. And, and so I was very excited to help you. And I was very disappointed, in fact, in how uh, that you're not still the leader of the conservative party for that reason. Um, but now when you take it into specific types of policies, Stephen Harper even, in the, in the battle with um, uh, Stéphane Dion, Harper said, because in those days it looked like the Americans were going to implement national cap and trade. You had uh, bills proposed by Republicans. You, um, and so in, the, in that period, in the mid-2000s, let's say 2005, 6, 7, 8, um, you, you had a sense that you might still get a national cap and trade system in the United States. And so, I mean, Harper, in a way, Harper was sort of saying, I'll wait till the Americans act because that's kind of easy. That's not really leadership on climate in my view, but that that's fine. And, and so that it looked like we might head to that. So cap and trade is you get permits for a certain amount of emissions and the government says you're going to get less permits next year and less the year after that. So some people realize, oh, it's cheaper for me to really reduce emissions. So some of that car issue, but it's 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 focused on emissions. And I'll have surplus um, permits that I can sell to others for whom it's more expensive to reduce emissions. So instead of them reducing their emissions very much, they'll buy permits from me. But as a whole, we'll get our emissions down. So this is called a cap and then trade. And we mean permit trading. And in a way, it has characteristics similar to what I told you about the flexible regulations, that you're, you're, the people in, who are under the regulation are able to trade with each other so that those who can do it cheapest are the ones who do it and others help to pay them to do it. Now, when you take that to Canada versus the U.S., it's not as simple as it might seem, Aaron, that you cross the border and the other people don't have a carbon price because they've had different flexible regulations. So electricity in in 35 US states, and I'm, I'm not sure about Ohio right now, but um, is under a flexible regulation requiring more and more renewables. So the price of electricity for that auto plant in Detroit um, does include an implicit carbon price from their flexible regulation in the electricity sector. They also have regulations on trucking that we've copied in Canada 
Canada. Um, and these are actually, so far, have had more of an impact on production costs, the regulations, than have carbon prices, and especially for industry. Because in Canada, quite rightly, we don't hit industry with the whole carbon price because they are competing internationally. And I've, you know, the NDP in the last federal election, I scored them very low in a ranking system I have because they said to Canadian voters, oh, don't worry, it's industry who will pay. And in fact, with climate change, it's quite the opposite. It's we shouldn't make industry pay. I know that sounds horrible, but if, if industry's trading and competing internationally with people who don't have much in the way of climate policy, that would be suicide. Um, and so to me, the NDP were not being honest with Canadian voters. So anyway, my point is that um, it's not clear cut, but yes, you'd like uh, that, 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 sort of we're paying and and the and the people in the United States are not paying for carbon pollution and in fact since the United States is in paralysis at the legislative national level whether you know congress it's going to be a continuation of presidential decrees whether it's from Biden or who knows whoever the next president is it'll be decrees in electricity decrees in vehicles and transportation decrees on industry that 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 implicitly do lead to a cost so cap and trade yes it exists in uh Quebec it's linked to a cap and trading in in, uh, in California. Ontario created the same link. I know you're aware of that, and probably many listeners. Uh, and then Doug Ford uh, eliminated that as well. So, um, and I think I think that was unfortunate. On the U.S., you're right. You know, you saw between Trump and Biden leaving Paris, joining Paris, almost going to be a zigzag federally from the United States standpoint. Um, this is one area. You, you talked about acid rain at the outset, one of the first things you, you, you were asked to advise on. I think Brian Mulroney, one of the smartest things he, he did was to be able to ensure that Canada and the U.S. aligned on that policy, saving lakes, particularly in, in northern Ontario and Quebec, um, with a price and with eliminating the issue of leakage because there was alignment on both sides of the border. Um, is that a great example of how pricing can can work to meet that emission policy objective? Yes, absolutely. And and uh, yes, and it was Mulroney. And it, I mean, Mulroney was, you know, he's he's received awards from the the environmental prime minister. Uh, environmental organizations um, uh, have. Uh, I've been at a dinner where he got some fantastic award. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, and that was, that was one example. He was also very concerned about greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. Um, but yes, uh, acid rain uh, was something where it's a, it's a huge policy success. And what's interesting is some of it was cap and trade and, and some of it was aligning uh, federal and provincial policies on both sides of the border. It's complicated. Um, and then, and some of it was regulations and some of those regulations Regulations were flexible, um, so uh, you know a lot of the the parts there uh, um, fit together in terms of of policy design. So, but but an interesting dilemma for Canadians is if the United States is is paralyzed for a while, and and like what do we do? What's our strategy? Um, for because you know climate change is not waiting for the United States to get its act together, and and this is where um, I think it's a challenge for all of us. But we need to think about who else on the planet is willing to move quickly. How do we coordinate our work with them? Um, and will we one day? You talk about carbon pricing, even have to have some kind of international carbon tariffs. And there's two reasons for that. One might be because of the United States or China, but the other is the developing world. You don't don't want them building coal plants in Southeast Asia or Africa. Um, and so if they want to do that in order to then sell goods in trade with us while we're closing down our coal plants at some cost, um, then we're going to have to look at carbon tariffs. And I, I'm part of a group of economists. And as you say, I'm in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change who are working on the design on this. And, and Europeans, as they push harder to reduce emissions, are very focused on that as well. Yeah, and car carbon border adjustment tariff um, I proposed in our policy platform as well, in large part because of less the United States, more the gaming by China, because 
what what we found, you look at the acid rain example, the Montreal protocol, the reduction of CFCs and the, the ozone layer hole, um, China was found to be violating that protocol a number of years ago because they can't be trusted on reporting. Whereas in Canada, we have you know transparent regulatory processes federally, provincially, most of the democratic allies do. Um, we won't really know uh, if they're self-reporting, whether they make reduction targets. So the carbon border adjustment tariff does allow countries that are, are being good actors to, to balance off the, the gaming of, of the system by, by bad actors. And so do you see this, the carbon border adjustment tariff? Biden has spoken about it. Do you see this as a way of, of accelerating emission reduction for democratic countries showing that you're not going to see a hollowing out to the developing world of, of industrial jobs. Yes. And I think <clears throat> it's not the only way, um, but I think it's part of, it's a, you know, it's an arrow in your quiver. Like I, I think we're going to need, um, and Mark Carney has worked on this. We're going to need financial institutions to say to developing countries, uh, you're where the growth is going to happen. And we really should no longer you know whether it's financial institutions or the World Bank and the and the uh, uh, um, the the monetary funds, IMF, and, yeah, yeah, the IMF, like any of that stuff, we can't be lending money for you to build coal plants. Just as an example, and to the Chinese credit, that to me, before the last Glasgow summit on climate negotiations internationally, it was the Chinese finally getting on side for that. Now, as you say, I'm not assuming that the Chinese will be 100% compliant. But I, I do see that as a big signal for them telling all these countries that they've been lending money to and help and giving money to to help develop uh, part of this belts and roads um, system. So railways, electricity generation, infrastructure, and um, that the Chinese are saying that they as well aren't going to finance. This is huge. That's the financial side. The other, though, is also us giving aid. And I know we're not going to give away tons amount of money for age you can't build an energy system for everybody in the rest of the world but there are ways we can be strategic with how we give that aid and we're getting a little smarter on that like helping key technologies develop and in key sectors uh and then finally there needs to be a stick uh so you know we got your carrots and, and then the, the other stick though is some sense of um of tariffs and border carbon adjustments you've got the right term there and i think that you know we've got some and so even if the chinese aren't always properly measuring stuff and sometimes it's not always their fault it's like the provincial level uh are lying to the senior level in that system and and i know because i've been involved i, I went to China for 20 years, twice a year as part of an advisor to the government. And so it's not like that all of China is trying to trick us. It's there's chaos in there too. Um, and, but you can get a crude sense of how, uh, CO2 intensive is their electricity system, how, you know, their, their steel industry, their uh, uh, cement and aluminum industry. And on that basis, you could put in tariffs that are incentivizing them to reduce the CO2 emissions. And, but it could be funny that we, we and the Europeans might one day be starting with some small tariffs, um, you know, against the United States and China. And I know that sounds like suicidal from a trade perspective, but not, not necessarily. It's how you build up to it. And even California wants to be part of that now mm -hmm. and, and perhaps New York State and so on. So it's complicated. It is. And I, I would often, in my support for, for Canadian resources and industrial manufacturing, I would often cite the aluminum manufactured in British Columbia and Kitimat or in Saguenay, Quebec, multiple times less carbon intense than competitive Chinese aluminum. And so this needs to be part of the global discussion so that we're not cutting off our nose to spite our face, that we can almost be rewarded or get credit. Before we leave this pricing conversation, because I think this has been helpful, and I know uh, our listeners will uh, will take a lot from this, let's revisit uh, my platform, because I, I do think, not that I'm trying to relitigate 
one of the mistakes we made, uh, I think, was to explain it to the journalists who were going to be very skeptical of uh, what are the conservatives doing? Is this real? We had third party validation. We had people like yourself had, had looked at what we were doing to make sure it's credible. But on the low carbon savings account, we kind of used the uh, air miles or the the sort of points analogy. And we did that because if you have a number of fuel distribution companies, you know, think of the gas stations or home heating providers for particularly parts of rural Canada that have home heating oil. Um, on your bill already, you have federal taxes, provincial taxes, carbon taxes. At the SO station, you also get your SO points, that sort of thing. So the point of sale sequestration of your carbon price being put into your low carbon savings account was actually very easy to implement. But it created this myth that we were incentivizing more driving by collecting points. And I would always say, gosh, this was a bit of a mistake in execution on our part. Because if you're if you're if you're transferring money from your checking to your savings account, you're not creating new value or money. You're simply having it in a sequestered low carbon savings account. What I like the most about our policy, and then I'd love to get your thoughts on this concept, is what we were proposing would have been the only way for your average Canadian household to get a rough sketch of what their carbon footprint was based at least on, on driving and, and home heating, these sorts of things. And it was different from the federal carbon tax, which does put the money back into the system, but it's the federal government has been less than transparent on how much each family gets. It's not a direct rebate. It's based on averages. And we know that rural or suburban commuters will get less and urban dwellers will probably get more. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, on what we proposed and would there be any benefits to that sort of approach rather than just sending tax dollars to Ottawa, hoping it will get reallocated? Right. So, um, so first of all, yeah, so when I heard this from you, I so this is the interesting challenge. I was also like, okay, wait a minute, what's going on here? Um, <laughs> but as I as I got to understand it, I, it was like, yeah, that, that'll work. And um, you get the price on there, and then pe but people are identifying, you know, what they, what they, and you're not saying to them, we're just going to give you the money back. You, you got to you got to do something that is clearly the acquisition or, or, you know, like an electric vehicle, electric bike, blah, 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 blah. Now. And, and so I too was, um, I mean, you're blaming yourself maybe, but I, I also was a little disappointed in some of the people I know in the media because I, I was thinking, come on, come on. It's not that tricky. And they really were kind of some of the stuff I saw anyway, was sort of like, Oh, this is a funny money kind of uh, scheme that Aaron O'Toole is cooking up. And I thought that was really unfair. Uh, I really did. I didn't, because what, what you're, what you were grappling with is, is the very point that I've been making from the beginning of this discussion, which is that climate policy is hard because we're uh, because fossil fuels are fantastic. And, and so we've been, you know, driving our vehicles and, and, you know, moving ourselves around. Now, I, with uh, with the oil products, I, I mean, I will say that more and more when, like, right now, the price of gasoline is shot up. Crazy. There are, there are, I know you might not think they're among your voters, but there are significant pe numbers of people out there that aren't unaffected by this. Like me, I've got an electric car, but I also know there's like five to 10% of people that don't own cars. And they're mostly very low income. Uh, they're not harmed by this. Um, they might be in their home heating and so on, but not on the, on the gasoline price. And, um, and then there are other people who take transit a lot and don't drive that much and so on. So, but, um, so I just wanted to say that I'm, you know, I was fine with your proposal. So my feedback is that that was fine. And, um, and, and more it's disappointment in some how it was portrayed sometimes in the media. And I think that was partly though, you have to overcome this sense that Harper maybe wasn't really sincere, that Andrew Shear wasn't sincere on climate. And, 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 and they're like, I remember Andrew Shear saying in his campaign, oh, we don't need a carbon tax we've got technology and like to me that's a complete um kind of deliberate misunderstanding you don't get the technology 
because fossil fuels are so you don't get the zero emission technology unless you have a regulation or a price to make that happen. And he didn't say that. He confused the action you want to have with the policy. You didn't do that. You were honest about policy. And then the question is a strategic one. And I thought your strategy wasn't bad. Let me ask you about an alternative strategy. Um, I So what did you think about just saying you'd come out with cap and trade to hit Canada's targets and run your campaign on that. Because what we do see is in California with the cap and trade, for example, um, and other like that, the price shows up in the price of gasoline, but the consumer doesn't, you know, doesn't know that much about what it is. I mean, they'll blame governments for any increase in the price of gasoline, even if it's because of a war in Ukraine. So you're always going to have that problem. But I was wondering why you didn't say we're going to do a national cap and trade instead of this carbon tax. Yeah, great question. Uh, We were constrained, I think, by a few things. Um, One, the fact that several provinces were were fine with the, the, the federal program and the federal backstop. Um, Three provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario had challenged the federal carbon tax uh, in Supreme Court. The Supreme Court had come down and and supported what the federal government was doing constitutionally. Um, It would have been easier for us if those provinces had said, okay, we lost the court case. Here is our provincial plan. And if it met within the framework of emission reduction, we were fine. Um, that didn't happen. Um, and so we, we couldn't then say we're foisting a cap and trade on you. And, and the third thing, and I alluded to this earlier, I can't speak to previous leaders. Um, this is a tough issue, but I wanted to make sure that my plan had measurable targets and that when I said we were going to meet our original Paris commitment, uh, that we had a plan to get there. We wanted third-party verification, and we just couldn't do it with flexible regulation. Like, that couldn't get us all the way there, right? And so we had to have a consumer price at some point to really meet the targets. And that's why I started the show off is, should Canada be a country that when we sign on to something, whether it's the Paris targets, whether it's our NATO target, should we not have a measurable plan to meet it? And that perhaps as my business background. Um, I want, I want things measurable. I want, I want to be held to account to a plan. So we needed that carbon price. And you may recall our, our carbon price that we were using was considerably less than, than the federal government, the Trudeau plan, but by implementing it, um, we would have achieved our emission targets. I also wanted to keep my promise as much as I could that I was, offering an elimination of the federal carbon tax. But when we got into low carbon savings account, the confusion, people would say, oh, this is just a tax anyway. Well, I would, I said, is it a tax if you're transferring it into your own account? Yes, you are restricted on what you can do with those funds. One of our MPs, uh, I loved his, his uh, idea. He compared it to a bottle deposit. He said, you know, when you, when you get your beer bottles and you take them back, you get your, your money back for the deposit, was that a tax? Or was that an environmental levy? I, I think there were better ways we could have explained it. But as I said, the the, heal, the wounds are finally starting to heal, Mark. Yeah. Well, and, and really, I, I'm just curious because I think <clears throat> so I have um, I spend, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for governments that are trying politicians or when in power as governments trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in a serious way, rather than kind of faking it. And so, um, uh, so I don't sit there and say, gee, Aaron, I, I think you could have done this differently. I don't see that at all. I see you as trying to be a responsible um global and Canadian citizen in saying uh, with given the people that I'm trying to get to support me and then the additional people in order to form a government, um, I'm going to have to be creative in some way. And there are going to be risks to that um, if you're being honest as you were. And so I, I am I am complimenting you a lot. I can tell listeners that he, you didn't ask me to do this. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, and this is why I think it's still worth discussing and i do think there are conservative ways to to tackle this um and let's talk about a a bit of those we had the ev standard in our our campaign but i was also 
very, very strongly in support of, of carbon capture. And in fact, the government's recent budget essentially adopted our tax incentive structure for carbon capture and sequestration. I also live in uh, the Durham region, which is powered by Darlington and Pickering. So I've been a big supporter of nuclear uh, generation of electricity, which allows Ontario to get off of coal um, with natural gas and some renewables, but that base load is emission free. The a lot of people, particularly in the Green Party and and even in the NDP and some of the Liberals, are very anti-nuclear. But really, if you're looking at industrial countries, electricity generation, if you're going to take coal out and go down to less carbon intensive forms of generation. Is it crazy to not say that nuclear is not part of your mix? Right. So um, great question. And so first thing I want to say is that, uh, so what you heard me say at the outset is how wonderful fossil fuels are. So I'm already (laughs) stricken from the the green list. Um, And then the second thing, though, is I have... I have, um, I, I like to say I have strong opinions about people, sorry, but there's a cat right here, but that's, that's a little background sound. Um, I have strong opinions about people who have strong opinions. <laughs> and <laughs> what I mean by that is that every one of our cleaner energy options, uh, whether it's for electricity or transportation or industry or buildings, um, none of them are perfect. They all involve impacts, trade-offs, be these of an environmental nature or a cost or technological or social. And, and so I, I want to get beyond that. And, and, and so when you do that, you say, well, do you really rule out nuclear completely? And um, my answer is no. If there's some place on the planet where people are doing nuclear well and they want to keep doing nuclear as part of one of the zero emission options, then they should do that. And so, for in, in fact, in Ontario, um, I would argue uh, you have such a great record of doing nuclear. It's not perfect, but I mean, in terms of impacts, uh, uh, social, environmental impacts, you have a great record. We're developing new technologies, the smaller, modular reactors. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that, uh, that of course, of course, I support that. Don't we have to have nuclear? Or I, I, tell me if I'm misquoting you, but it was the idea that doesn't nuclear have to be part of this? And, and I would argue no. So you can have places in the world, including all of Canada, where you don't have nuclear power, where you're using a lot of wind and solar, because that is cheap but it's it's not as cheap as everyone says because you do need to back it up with something for reliability that could be nuclear but there are many options there is our large hydro reservoirs so we could build larger transmission between provinces which is to tap into the ones with the large hydro reservoirs there's you could have um you could even have natural gas plants that you're only using when the wind isn't it blowing and the sun's not shining, those natural gas plants increasingly can be run on hydrogen or bio uh, natural gas instead of the fossil fuel natural gas. Um, you also can do battery storage. Uh, I mean, you can store energy in. Um, uh, so I'd mentioned the large hydro reservoirs. You can also do pumped hydro, you can do compressed air storage. So some of these are technologies that some people won't be familiar with, but they're, they're quite, uh, they're in the range of costs of nuclear uh, in terms of reliable energy. So I, that, therefore, I am ne- neither saying we have to have nuclear, nor am I saying that we shouldn't have nuclear. I think some places on the wor- on the planet will have nuclear power. Ontario is probably one of them, and that will be part of the zero emissions, the long term zero emission solution. Yeah, and, and some of these technologies, in fact, there's a really promising one um, in Toronto based out of the Mars Centre on compressed air, and and there's some remarkable innovations. And so all of it, if it's helping us meet our emission reduction targets, which is the goal here, um, all of it, I guess, should be on the table. And all energy production has... Um, has some social costs, some some negative costs to it, including hydro. You know, I often say back 
you know, 50, 60 years ago when indigenous uh, bands were being displaced by, by flooding for, for hydro development, there was no regulatory consultation or, or environmental impact or indigenous consultation. It just happened. Um, so all of these impacts need to be assessed. And I guess that's why governments have, have relied on someone like you because they have to be evaluated to see, you know, measure their outcomes and, and measure the cost and balance, balance the two. Um, so technology is, is a key part of the overall set of flexible regulation, I guess, too. Yeah. And the, the, the key point is that, yeah, so we have these actions. It's us fuel switching, switching to another form of energy or capturing the, the, the carbon dioxide emissions or being more efficient. Those are the action or, or managing forest lands and, and, um, and agricultural practices better. Those are all things that are part of reducing emissions. The policies to cause those are the pricing and the regulations. When we look at the various options, though, as I, as I said, we, you and I focused on nuclear, but I've also made myself unpopular with environmentalists by saying, in some cases, it'll be bioenergy. Now, it, it's quite amazing that people will be opposed to bioenergy, but that's because some in some cases where we've used uh, palm tree plantations or sugarcane or corn crops, we haven't managed them properly. But I can give you examples where we're producing ethanol from sugarcane in a very environmentally favorable way. And likewise, biodiesel from palm oil and and likewise from corn. So it's all a matter of how you regulate the operation of these options. Likewise, with large hydro in Canada, as we've started to make progress on giving, on make, not giving, on returning to uh, First Nations, uh, Indigenous peoples, uh, access and rights to their land, we I'm seeing a shift of thinking more not about oh give us access to this land so we can continue subsistence hunting and fishing what the indigenous leaders are telling me is we we want to we, we still want to do hunting hunting and fishing for a recreational thing and you're welcome to join us it's a it's a great way to reconnect with our traditions and so on but no we want to use that land for our economic self-determination and to be partners with um with the rest of our society in this. And when you start to look at that, there's just an enormous potential. And when you and I talked about sort of, okay, there, there's maybe we're not going to sell as much oil products um, and maybe we're not going to use as much coal, but oh my goodness, the economic development that will happen from land, because renewable energy uses a lot of the land base. And I'm seeing First Nations people are interested in hydro development that they have some control over. And um, you know, we're going to just see so much. Oh, and also all the mining that can go on for all of these tech, the, the new technologies are physical based rather than energy based. So rather than you going out and digging up in the land to get more coal or natural gas instead you have to get lithium and cobalt and copper mm. and and you and uh, iron ore and make and make things um and and rock for for cement and, and limestone and and you're going to make um things that then are going to tap into a lot of free energy whether it's flowing water sun shining blowing wind but the job creation the industrial development that's possible for that is enormous both for um, for Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians. Absolutely. And I think that's a, a, a good section to transfer into the last part of our discussion, which is really the polarization of discussions on climate change, on emission reduction. We talked a little bit earlier about how there are some folks that are just anti-development, anti-resource development, whether it's oil and gas, whether it's cobalt and, and rare earth or critical minerals that we need for the EVs that are, are, are being ramped up under flexible regulation. Um, and then on the other side, you know, if you say that's kind of the anti-development left, the, the right and some folks on, on the further right um, suggest that climate change is not even uh, man-made or, or, or contributed by man that, that Paris is a, is a, is a global scheme and, and globalist government takeover. So there's conspiracy theories on the far right. There's, you know, anti shut down the economy, shut down Canada, uh, climate extinction, these sorts of things. 
it's leading to a polarization of politics, but it's also leading to a term climate anxiety in young people. They're finding rates of depression skyrocketing. Thoughts on this polarization and what can we do beyond podcast discussions that are very enlightening like this? What can we do to to try and find some common ground here and and stop the polarization of of climate policy? Great question. And, um, you know, I started out my career and it was fun to go back through it with you really as an economist who uh, got his degree in his institute where I did a lot of engineering courses as well. I took a course in nuclear engineering, if you can believe that. I can't remember anything, but um, <laughs> and and so and, and I, you know, and the Mulroney government sent me off to Paris. We all came back, by the way, and said, oh, put on a carbon price. And Mulroney and um, uh, Bouchard was the environment minister. They were like, maybe soon. Uh, the Swedes, the, the Scandinavians put the carbon price on right away, but everybody else um, took longer. And, and as, as you know, humanity has spun its wheels on, on a real significant effort with climate, I've gotten more interested in other things. First of all, it's a global problem. And global problems are going to be really difficult. So even when we talked about acid rain, at least Canada and the United States could get together and solve a regional problem. Europe could get together and solve a regional problem. Carbon dioxide, greenhouse gases, um, ozone-depleting substances, chlorofluorocarbons were global, but they were kind of like a small part of the economy, so we could zero in on them. This thing is really big, so it's made me learn more about um, diplomacy. It's also made me learn more about policy, which you and I have discussed because I didn't start out in that area, and then a lot about politics and psychology so both group psychology and and so i've studied more and more in the last 10 years of my career and that led to thanks for mentioning the book that people can look up it's called the citizen's guide to climate success uh cambridge university press because in there i talk about strategies for this polarization and i want to make just say two things about it um one is that um, I want people to take heart that we crazy humans, um, we can finally act on things when um, it's still, uh, there's still many humans who don't believe that we should be doing this. And I use, I have a chapter in there devoted to smoking and the struggle with smoking. And even though it's something where you're harming yourself, uh, you know, climate change and the next hurricane is a little bit indirect or the next heat wave. Um, but we acted on smoking when a, a very large percentage of people still didn't believe the science. We acted on acid rain when a large percent, when I say a large percentage, I'm talking 25 to 40 percent. Uh, likewise on acid rain and, and, and likewise the ozone depleting substances and so on. So the one thing is don't feel and this. I say this to, to younger people to take heart. Don't spend too much of your time beating your head to debate with people who are just not going to believe this. It's kind of like our uh, our masks. And uh, uh, I've made myself unpopular with some of my science friends because I'm like, stop berating people if they don't want to wear a mask in their own private settings or whatever. Why why do we why do we going after them on that? And so that's the that's the the, the take heart is we don't have to convince everyone for us to act successfully. And then the other thing is, is to focus on these successful demonstrations. It's happening fast. So I, one of the things I talk about in the book is the phase out of coal plants in Ontario from 2004 to 2014. Well, what happened was greenhouse gas emissions from the electricity sector in Ontario fell by something like 85 or 90% in the span of one decade. And this is an amazing success story. This is the biggest reduction in Canada. And it tells you it's possible elsewhere. And then there are many other stories like that, whether it's Brazil switching to biofuels in vehicles or France going over to nuclear power in about a 10 a 15 year period just before when I when I lived there. And there are a lot of the UK shutting down its coal plants essentially in a decade. Um, so there are lots of great and then the new technologies that are coming out. And this is why, even though I'm not a huge fan of government subsidies, and I, I bet you you're not either. There are places where you can direct those subsidies. And so when people have asked me, 
in the federal government, Jonathan Wilkinson, when he was environment minister, now resource minister, natural resource, I'm like, send money into Alberta, work in collaboration with the Alberta government and the oil and gas industry, and and start doing the carbon capture and storage with uh, with direct subsidies, with tax credits, and so on. Um, and we're starting to get that happening now. And there's starting to be kind of an industry excitement about this, which is way better when it's just environmentalists and a few academics like me screaming and ranting, but when it's instead, it's the business community, it's capitalism starting in the market, starting to, to feel its power. And I, I think we're in that kind of world right now. And so I have lots of optimism and I do talk a lot to younger people. And I, I just finished here at the in mid-April um, my regular course in sustainable energy to 140 students. And I just uh, loved all all of the notes I got afterwards, them telling me, okay, you're an, you're a crazy excited guy. You're very excited all the time, but my goodness, you've inspired us. And we're all feeling really positive and ready to go to work. And so I say to them, if you have some depressed friends, send them to me. Um, so people like you and I have a role to play. And I know you're drawing, doing the same kind of thing. And, um, and so I think there's lots to be positive about, and we don't need to worry too much about people who are just not going to accept uh, what needs to happen. Yeah, on both left and right. I, I, I agree. I, I found there's a lot of optimism, a lot of positivity in industry. I remember speaking to Suncor and some of the big players. They want technology. They want investments. They want to get their emissions down. They want to be that uh, zero by 2050. And they're ambitious about it. And they actually want certainty. So they almost don't want a zigzagging approach where uh, for a few years, we're going to have a price, then we'll eliminate the price or um, they want certainty. And they want that so that we can then market our energy as being ESG leaders, you know, environmentally, social governance, indigenous partnerships, there's so much opportunity here if we just have a long-term plan and stick with it. Um, and so any of these uh, climate anxious young people, we will, we will tell them they have to go to Simon Fraser university and, and sit in on your course to reduce the anxiety because there's still major challenges, but we are making progress. So what you're saying, focus on that progress, focus on the positivity to negate the sort of polarization we're seeing. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and change is never linear, you know, so it could be that we're, we're on a tipping point. Um, maybe we're not, but um, I think in many ways we are. And that's why even when I, you know, sometimes get depressed about the ineffectiveness of the United States at a, at a, because it's an aware people, they're, they're, they're global leaders. Um, I recognize that there are things happening at the state level and at industry level in the United States, um, which are, which are, are, could be very close to a tipping point, whether it's in the vehicles market, electricity generation, uh, and other things and industry. And so, um, yeah, when you start looking at that evidence, um, it's, it's a good sign for optimism as well. Well, listen, that's a perfect way to end this, Mark, because the blue skies concept is not just blue because I'm blue conservative, blue Air Force guy. It's meant to be uh, a positivity to examine issues in a in a in positive outlook to them. And so even though there's some challenge and I've faced challenges myself trying to come up with sensible, smart uh, climate change policies, there's there's a lot of positive happening and there's a lot of potential for Canada to really benefit. Um, so thank you very much for bringing your experience, bringing your your background and for your positivity. Well, thank you, Aaron. And I, I just want to say uh, again, though, that uh, um, I think you're, you're, you, you recognize that you're in a critical role and, and you've taken the challenge and we need more Canadians like you. And I'm very appreciative, very thankful to be on this show and happy to do follow-ups of various kinds um, to push things forward. So I, I appreciate the chance to do this. Thank you. That's Mark Jacquard. And for the record, I did not pay him or incentivize him to say positive things, but that's more, more than welcome. And we've been blue skying climate change, climate policy, uh, flexible regulation, carbon pricing, and how that helps us technology. And we ended on some of the polarization on this issue, but we ended in a way that shows progress is being made. I've often used 
the Air Force expression or short form acronym CAVU, Ceiling and Visibility Unlimited. Uh That really is Canada's future. We are an energy superpower. We are an innovative country, and we are one that can meet our commitments, whether they're for emission reduction, whether they're for helping our allies in NATO, whether it's for helping the developing world through development assistance. I think Canada should stand by its commitments. That should be in our DNA as a nation. So we've been very fortunate today to have Mark Jacquard, Blue Skying Climate Change Policy with us. If you have any comments on this podcast or suggestions for a new topic that we need to Blue Sky or an expert or a personality that could bring their wisdom to the Blue Skies political podcast, send me an email or send me a direct message through any of these platforms. And I'd ask you to share this podcast so that we can push that infectious positivity that we ended with into more conversations to reduce the polarization on this topic and on all topics. Once again, I'm Aaron O'Toole, Member of Parliament for Durham. Thank you for joining the Blue Skies Political Podcast.